This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And as most of you know, Katie and I love Victorian literature and 19th century British novels and poetry. And we were talking about it recently. The character of the opium addict or the opium eater so many pops up them. a lot, doesn't he? And for a while, I thought that was just sort of the easy thing to go to. Like, I need an extra character. Who should I put in? I know, the opium eater. But then I realized it was an actual problem in British society at it the time. It was a major problem in Victorian England. There were a lot of opium addicts, but it turns out that is nothing compared to the problem the Victorians forced on the Chinese at the same time. So let's talk about opium history and how it got to China and Britain in the first place. Opium is great for relieving tension and pain. Not that we're recommending this because we're absolutely not, but that's why it became popular. The ancient Assyrians used it as a painkiller. So did first century Greeks. And there don't seem to be any addictions in those old stories, and that may be because of how they were taking it, which was in pills or added to drinks. Turkish and Arab traders brought opium to China in the 6th or 7th century, But the 17th century marks when we learned how to smoke it. Helpful Westerners had seen Indians smoking tobacco in pipes and thought, hey, why don't we add a little opium to the tobacco? Realized it was fantastic for what they were looking for and quickly got addicted and brought it over to China. And the Portuguese started making a killing bringing opium from India to China. In the 1700s, the West is using opium, laudanum, and paragoric in those wonderful, quackery kind of patent medicines. And in 1729, it's a huge problem in China, and the emperor at the time outlaws the sale and the smoking of opium. But it doesn't end. And we're going to talk a little bit about why and how it got there, which would be thanks to the British. So the British have a very unequal trade relationship with the Chinese. And part of this has to do with the Manchu emperors believing that the Middle Kingdom already had everything it needed. They don't need to import stuff from the British. But that's a pretty valid belief in a way. On the one hand, you have the British who are obsessed with tea. They can't get enough tea from China. And 
Columbia University actually estimates that the average Londoner spent 5% of the total household budget on tea. Which is a lot more than I spend on my Earl Grey. I don't yeah, know about you all. It's a pretty hefty price. And it's not just tea. They can't get enough of the chinaware, the spices, candy, silk. Meanwhile, the British, the goods they have to offer are manufactured items, which the Chinese dismiss as toys. They don't really need them. And then a lot of woolen goods. And most people in China don't need these hefty wool sweaters and such from Britain. So you have this really imbalanced trade agreement where the British are importing tons of stuff from China. And because they can't trade, they have to pay in silver. So all their silver is going to China, and China's not getting anything from them. And so the Brits, again, have been trying for years to open the Chinese market. And everything they bring over the Chinese aren't interested in, nor are they really interested in dealing with them. And they have super strict rules about trade for foreigners. Foreign factories are only allowed in Canton, for example. Only certain ports are open. They can't even enter the cities that they're in. So if you're a foreigner trying to break into the Chinese market, it's just not going to happen for you at this particular time. So enter opium, which is how the British finally figure out to wiggle into the market because there is a growing demand and the supply comes from an English colony, India. So they even go as far as offering free samples out, trying to get people addicted to opium so that China gets this insatiable thirst for opium. Tisk tisked the British. Yeah, and it really gets out of hand quickly. Addiction's a huge problem. By 1773, the British have surpassed all other sellers. They're the leading suppliers to the Chinese. And by 1796, the emperor outlaws importing and cultivating opium as well because it's, again, a huge problem, and they're trying their best to stop it. So how do the British get around these laws, though? Well, the East India Company is, of course, not allowed to carry opium since it's illegal. So they hire these country traders who sell opium to smugglers in China, collect gold and silver for it, and then hand it over to the East India Company, who then takes the gold and silver and buys things in China that they can sell for a profit in England, which is pretty slick, East India Company. So the trade imbalance has now shifted because of this growing demand for opium. So the Chinese China are spending, right. that's depleting their silver stores. Right. And so China decides that it not only has to save its people from opium, it also needs to learn how to control the Brits in their country. So in 1839, the emperor designates Commissioner Lin Tzu and... This is going to be our introduction to pronunciation warnings. Um, we got a little help from a colleague, but we're telling you right now some of these pronunciations may not be correct. Feel free to apologize. send us kind emails if you have pronunciation corrections. Anyways, Commissioner Lin is appointed by the emperor as the imperial commissioner, and he's authorized to do whatever is necessary to end the traffic of opium. And he does some things you might expect, like rounding up the opium addicts and forcing them into treatment, punishing domestic drug dealers, and the domestic drug dealers were punished pretty steeply. Um, But he also goes to Canton, where he seizes the opium off of ships and dumps it into the sea. And This radical act happened at the same time as the murder of a Chinese villager by drunk sailors. All of this got tensions brewing. And the British government won't hand over the sailors who killed the Chinese man to the Chinese government because they didn't trust the government, which, of course, 
makes the Chinese angry. So things aren't going well. And about the same time, Commissioner Lin says that China will completely cut off trade with Britain if the opium stuff doesn't happen. And in February 1840, the Brits decide, to hell with it. That's the end of it. They're getting their military involved, and they're going to get in that market. So Lord Palmerston, the British prime minister, initiates war, and this is the first opium war in China. He wants full compensation for the opium dumped in the sea. But there's a problem with this war. China's at a severe disadvantage because of the British gunpower. Right, and the British Royal Navy is absolutely fantastic. And the Chinese military simply isn't equipped or trained to be fighting against the sort of thing they're fighting against. In June 1840, 16 British warships show up at Hong Kong. A man named Charles Elliott starts negotiating for the Brits, and there's an agreement in January 1841, but both sides hate it, and neither one of them wants to go with it. And in May 1841, the British attack the walled city of Guangzhou, Canton, and get a $6 million ransom, and the Cantonese tack them back. But again, the Navy is simply too good, and the Chinese don't have an effective way to fight back. They're offering rewards for British heads, but it's just not happening. And the tricky British propaganda of the time was putting it across like this, that they weren't there to fight the Chinese people. They were just there to fight the Chinese government and the soldiers who abused the people. And Trying at the to time, leave the opium question out of it right. entirely. And there were some rifts in society that they could play off at the time. Definitely. Well, there were also rifts in the British society about this war. I think Katie and I initially went into this thinking that British people were all rah-rah about the opium war and trading with China. But that's not the case. A lot of people are, are against it, and they see it as uh, something to be ashamed about, forcing opium, a drug that is illegal in England, onto the Chinese. It's denounced in Parliament by a young William Gladstone as an unjust and inequitous war. And he even accuses the prime minister of fighting a war to protect an infamous contraband traffic. And there's outrage on the pulpits and in the press in America and England. Actually, the outrage is so strong in America that a lot of the merchants there kind of back off from it, uh, get out of the trade entirely. Even though we'd been selling the uh, Turkish stuff to China as well, yeah. this is when we started to back off. Commissioner Lin was also trying to push this moral argument. He wrote a letter to Queen Victoria, and it's uncertain if she even read this, but in it, he was very frank, surprisingly frank for writing to Victoria. He writes, The wealth of China is used to profit the barbarians. That is to say, the great profit made by barbarians is all taken from the rightful share of China. By what right do they then, in return, use the poisonous drug to injure the Chinese people? Even though the barbarians may not necessarily intend to do us harm, yet in coveting profit to an extreme, they have no regard for injuring others. Let us ask, where is your conscience? And I'm sure Victoria loved her people being called barbarians. But yeah. you can't underestimate the human cost of what was going on at the time. Yeah. The Chinese end up losing the war. Elliot's successor, Henry Pottinger, captures several of their cities, including Shanghai. And at Nanjing, they give in. And this is where the Treaty of Nanjing is signed on August 29th, 1842. It's the first treaty ever signed by China with any European power. And it's the first of what's known as the unequal treaties, and there is a reason for that. Beginning a century of, of such treaties. Right. China gives Hong Kong to Britain. They also open more ports to British trade. 
They agree to equal official recognition, and they pay an indemnity of $21 million. Um, some of that was payment for the opium that Commissioner Lin had destroyed. And they also give the right of British citizens to be tried by British courts, and they lower tariffs. And this is... a especially awful part, other Western countries quickly demand their own privileges oh, after seeing the US treaty. And France are right in there. <laughs> so yeah, we want to be able to trade too and everybody jumps in to get their piece of the pie. To be part of the most favored nation clause. That's what everyone wants. And oddly, considering that this entire war is about opium, opium is not mentioned anywhere in this treaty, and this will come back to haunt us, as we'll see a little later. This treaty also sets up the treaty port system which means that in treaty ports, Westerners weren't subject to China's laws. They could do their own things, set up their own legal situation, and pretty much do things however they wanted. The major treaty ports in China were Shanghai and Guangzhou. But however, this is the one thing the Chinese did keep, foreigners still weren't allowed in the interior of China. So the first opium war is over, but the problems aren't over because opium is still an issue. The question of opium isn't resolved in the treaty at all. Right. Trade is still an issue, and the Chinese are still very unhappy about having the British in their country, and the British are unhappy because they still don't have all of the rights and privileges they would like. Exactly. So a man named Qi Ying is put in place as imperial commissioner, and he believes in appeasement. So things run smoothly for a while. But trade doesn't increase the way the British thought it would. And again, the opium thing still isn't settled. Yeah, you'd think with this sweet treaty they've worked out that, you know, everything would be more conducive to higher opium trade. But that doesn't happen. No. And the question of whether foreigners should be allowed into the walled city of Guangzhou still isn't settled. After the treaty was declared open, but it never happened because the Chinese are really resistant to letting the barbarians, as they thought of them, into their walled city. And the Cantonese finally promised the British they could come in in 1849, but they really aren't happy about it. And as 1849 approaches, the protests begin because no one wants the British in there. The British give in, the Beijing court grants temporary entrance, but the Cantonese have won this round, and I can't help rooting for China at this point. And there's a lot of xenophobia in China, a lot of anti-foreign sentiment, and it only grows... And with the anti-foreign sentiment comes anti-government sentiment. And some of this ends up carrying into the Taiping Rebellion, which is a radical political and religious upheaval that goes on from 1850 to 64. And Katie and I might want to talk about this some more later. Right, so we're not going to give too much we away. We won't give too much away, but it's a pretty wild thing. It takes an estimated 20 million lives, and it permanently alters the... Um, Qing or Manchu dynasty and the way that the Chinese government has worked for so long. But an interesting thing about the Taiping Rebellion is they're very anti-opium. They are, it's actually a Christian rebellion. Um, the leader believes that he's the son of God, which surprisingly, that does not mean Jesus. He believes he's Jesus' younger brother. But he's very anti-opium and all of the Taiping's um, credos are really Old Testament. It's not about New Testament style forgiveness and such. It's um, anti-opium, anti-alcohol and tobacco, prostitution, foot binding. So this radical social and government change is happening also 
leading up to the Second Opium War. Right. So there's this huge social rift that's going on from 1850 to 1864. That's how long the Taiping Rebellion lasted. And the West steps in again and helps put the rebellion down because they're afraid that the China the Taiping were advocating would be even more resistant to Western influences. So we're very good at looking after well, our own interests. And their anti-opium. <laughs> Which, you know, really wouldn't help us That's with that whole trade thing. That's all about at the end of the day. And this is when the second opium war starts. You thought it was over, but it's not. In 1856, Chinese officials get on the ship Arrow, which was Chinese-owned but British-registered, and they charge the crew with piracy and smuggling and lower the British flag. And the Brits want to get more trading rights in China anyway, so they basically use this incident to start the fight. And the French join forces with the British, using as their excuse, the murder of a French missionary in the interior of China. But it's really not about the missionary. No, not at all. It's about the opium and the trading. The Russians and Americans get in on the game and send their representatives, and military actions against China start in 1857. Guangzhou is occupied, the Dagu Fort is taken, and the Chinese are forced to sign the treaties of Tianjin, which call for residents in Beijing for foreign envoys, travel in the interior, and freedom of movement for missionaries. As well as opening of new ports. And they're also forced to legalize the import of opium in 1858, which is just, I mean, not to be all judgy about history, but seriously. So the Chinese unsurprisingly refuse to ratify these treaties, which are even more unequal than the earlier ones. So, in retaliation, the Allies capture Beijing and then plunder and burn one of the emperor's palaces, uh, Yuanming Garden. So in 1860, the Chinese signed the Beijing Convention, saying that they will, in fact, observe the treaties. And during this time, Russia has also maneuvered its way into a a nice, beneficial place to be by acting as China's buddy throughout these various negotiations. And China cedes to Russia the territory between the Ussuri River and the sea. So everyone but China gets what they want. Yeah, so out of the Second Opium War, we end up with more foreign privileges, Christians being allowed to come in and evangelize, uh, and a, a kind of threat to the moral and cultural values of China. Right, because Confucianism was what they were observing at the time, and allowing someone to come in and threaten your moral and cultural values that way. Well, and not to mention the imperial rule by this point has just been battered. They have fallen every time when they come up against the British. So they're at at a threat to forces from their own people. And in case you're wondering what happened with opium, the trade routes just keep on keeping on, as I put in my notes. Um, we had figured out how to get morphine from opium in around 1804 and use it on soldiers during the Civil War and so end up with plenty of addicts of our own. And we figure out heroin in 1898, which quickly becomes very popular and still is. But in the early 1900s, China starts to get control of opium trade, at least within its borders. Mm. And the country signs the 10 Years Agreement with India in 1907 which basically says that China forbids the cultivation and consumption of opium, and India agrees to cease exporting it completely in 10 years. So by 1917, we've pretty much stopped that. Yeah, but by 1948, Burma gains independence, and they're all about producing opium. And this even goes into the beginning of communism in China. When the communists come to power in 1949, they stop all the opium business completely shut it down. 
But it just moves elsewhere. Yeah. In the 60s and 70s, that's when the Golden Triangle comes up, the border of Myanmar, Laos, and Thailand. And the UN starts a drug control program to limit activity in the area, but they just switch to meth, and the opium goes to Afghanistan instead. And we know about the wars there, too. So opium just keeps on ravaging people across the centuries here. And oddly, some of the most popular articles on the HowStuffWorks Health Channel are the drug articles. So if you'd like to learn how meth works or crack cocaine or the dangers of using marijuana, come to our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Hey, it's Laura Wasser, host of the All's Fair podcast on iHeartRadio. I'm a family law attorney, which is really a euphemism for a divorce attorney, and I've been practicing for over 20 years. I've learned some very interesting things along the way, and I can tell you that when dealing with matters of the heart, rules seldom apply. With advice and anecdotes from many of my friends, some of whom may be celebrities, as well as the best legal, financial, and mental health professionals in the country, our goal is to educate, enlighten, empower, and entertain you on the way to a better understanding of how relationships work. iHeartRadio is number one for podcasts, but don't take our word for it. Find All's Fair with Laura Wasser on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, Uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.